0: You're listening to You Might Have a Point. Each week, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I'm pleased to welcome today Aaron Rabinowitz. He is a PTL at Rutgers University and is a PhD student uh, in the education department uh, and is also the host of the Embrace the Void podcast. Aaron, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me on.
0: So the way I like to start off the episode is just how would you describe yourself ideologically and then um, what is the overall ethos of the approach that you bring to your podcast?
1: sure I mean I, I was, I, if, I, if I may add I also think sure. philosophers in space which is another podcast. oh right maybe yep. slightly more accessible for some folks you know people have different flavors different preferences um but they're they're both fun in their own way yep. um I am I would describe myself as a progressive uh is the first word that that I immediately kind of reach for um and I can extend that to include things like I, I'm, I'm fairly pluralistic in my philosophical approaches so i'm happy to identify with quite a few isms like liberalism and um versions of socialism and versions of um uh let's see what other things would i add in there I, i identify as an atheist um identify as a a moral realist as an ethicist i identify as as well yeah i mean in the non-pejorative sense i certainly fall into the woke camp i am am deeply concerned with issues of social justice Mm -hmm. could be a fair way to put it
0: cool um so yeah i figured the first question i would ask is almost an ironic question but um uh we're speaking on january 10th four days after um an insurrectionist mob tried to successfully storm the Capitol and almost subverted the process mm-hmm. by which we certify the results of the American presidential election. So, how are you feeling about the American experiment?
1: Oh, um, I've been in a consistently pessimistic place for a while. I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I'm not going to have a hot take about how I feel about the current state of things. I've been trapped inside my house for a year. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I'm going to see a vaccine and like, I'm not super, like there are things to be slightly optimistic about in that it seems like we are headed towards a, you know, a government that might be able to pass anything, which is a huge improvement over the previous government we had. Um, But of course that government is going to face a steep uphill climb um, in trying to address the variety of um, issues that are, you know, continuing to accelerate fairly radically, like climate change. Um, so, you know, I think it's we can say that we averted the nearest cliff and are still barreling towards a variety of other cliffs. It seems like, okay, I guess that's how I feel. And like for the capital, I think I. You know, this was this was something. I was one of the folks who was. This is going to kind of happen in the sense that, like, I believe there was going to be escalation in response because I simply uh, it, it seemed impossible to me that all of the energy that was being ginned up around conspiracy theories on the right would just go nowhere. That it would just mm. kind of mm. dissipate back into the ether in some way. That I think, I think we all knew that the right was playing with live ammunition, and it was, you know.
0: Rhetoric has consequences. Right.
1: And you don't want to be happy because this happened in the sense that like, it's a tragedy and it's disturbing, but in the sense, you know, I was talking with with a a moderate conservative friend of mine who was trying to cope with like what he saw as left people being happy about this, like, right. Mm -hmm. Being gleeful at seeing this exposed in this kind of way. And I put it to him in the sense of, um, You know, if you're someone who's experienced gaslighting and then you've experienced years and years of being told that something that seems very bad is not actually very bad, the moment of having its badness exposed in such Mm -hmm. a very public way is a relief, is a comfort, is, um, you know, something that it's understandable that someone would be happy to see, even with the costs associated with it. Partly because, like, you can hope that the 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 explosion of the reality on such a public stage would at least slightly influence like the way that people will address these issues going forward
0: right yeah i'm certainly hoping that as well I, i guess i also come from a moderate conservative standpoint and um have pretty much always been against Trump. Um, I think there there are some of us, uh, we are not very, uh, we don't have an, uh, an audience on Fox News as, as much as I would like, but um, we exist. <laughs> you're, um, you're an
1: impressively endangered species is what I'll say. Yeah. Uh, um,
0: I, so I guess one of the reasons <coughs> I, I like your podcast is, I've listened to a couple episodes now and you talk about the importance of debate and um, Socratic debate and being willing to engage with the different ideas. Um, I guess one of the things we have in common is that we're interested in philosophy and in the concept of ideas. Uh, So I guess the way, one way I ask this question, I just had um, Mickey Enslicht and Joël Inbar on my podcast and they were talking about how they identify as pretty liberal and really the main difference that they saw with other liberals was like a, a generational gap where younger liberals more or less agreed with them, I think on policy goals, but they seem to be less inclined to have sort of a debate with someone that was more to the right of them um, and that kind of thing. Is that something that you see as well and, and your experience at uh, at the university?
1: So I think it's complicated and I certainly don't wanna generalize from my limited experience you know, in my philosophy classes where I get to actively encourage people to have controversial debates around hot button issues. That's like the whole point of the classes that I teach. So I probably have a somewhat skewed experience of how comfortable people actually feel discussing these ideas in these spaces. Um, And I'm also, I'm very hesitant to sign on to generational divide. Okay. Because I think... We, you know, we very easily slip into like the millennial boomer distinctions and and use them as like uh, a way to, and, and I guess I, part of the reason I'm anxious about it is that I think it often goes hand in hand with this approach by, we'll, we'll call them the anti-woke or whatever, who want to cleave a distinction between previous civil rights movements that were good and mostly nonviolent and mostly mm. engaged in robust discourse with their opposition and then brought about like civil change through that discourse right versus mm. the modern woke who they want to paint as unwilling to have those debates and like um, you know and, and more extreme generally in their conclusions um, I lean towards more more towards the view that I think what we're seeing in the modern world is the continued progression of a civil rights movement that has been going on for a hundred years, at least, if not more, Mm. right. That has, um, you know, struggled with continuing to be a functional force for good in a increasingly commodified, increasingly informational age. So there's been stages of evolution in response to circumstances but i don't think fundamentally that it's true for example that the previous generation was more open to having a discussion and our generation is less open like there was a large faction within the original civil rights movement that was for violent change right that was for Mm -hmm. having guns and arming people of color so they could defend themselves against the Klan. um so like I i think I think it's too easy to think of one small segment of, of Martin Luther King's project as being like the whole of the civil rights era and ignoring like, you know, ignoring how even MLK talks about how there are these breakdowns in discourse because um, you know, white moderates are constantly demanding civil discourse, which doesn't appear to actually bring about substantive change. And that's why he's justifying these these protests, which are, while in principle, nonviolent, extremely disruptive and extremely controversial at the time, right? He goes to right. jail for for these activities. So you know, I think we should be really careful not to, to paint those kind of black and white pictures. Now, I will, as a philosopher, always play the flip side of every conversation. So the flip side of that is, I do think there is some feeling amongst younger individuals that they, they are emboldened towards the idea that debate is used as a tool to prevent substantial change and is used as a constant holding mechanism and that you are not morally obligated to debate white nationalists or white supremacists about their views and try to like bring them about through um you know through conversation it's it's great and super irrogatory if you devote your life to doing that but like normal human beings are not obligated to do that i don't think and i think that's a that's a valuable sort of perspective in a world where everyone is constantly shouting debate me at each other
0: (laughs) yeah i guess they are shouting debate me at each other um it's Sort of interesting how you def- define these things like who is worthy of debate, who is beyond the pale um and I think there's hard. Uh, yeah well and yeah so i like I try to um be as broad minded as possible, <laughs> um while also like drawing lines where I see someone is clearly you know not um or it clearly is being fast and loose with the truth or just obviously Mm -hmm. bigoted or things like that um but yeah it it i mean it seemed i guess we're both sort of acknowledging even though we're pretty different ideologically that it's a difficult thing to do Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i mean i just
1: think that like you know there's not there's never gonna be this kind of absolutist solution of everybody gets to be on all the platforms or something mm-hmm. like that. I just don't think that I don't think that's functional. It was never the way that it was going to work. I don't even think that you could build, you know, you could base it on sort of like a John Stuart Mill, you know, have everyone out in the open and it's better for everyone in that kind of way. Like I just think there's enough empirical evidence against those kinds of arguments at this point that like I think it's reasonable to get Donald Trump off of Twitter. Like I just don't think that's yeah. an authoritarian move. I think that's a move for the greater good and is totally justifiable. Just like it was with Alex Jones. And you're right that the question is how do we how do we draw the line? How do we stop the the slide into what does feel unacceptable? Um, and that is a very difficult project. But I think if we're gonna do that, like we need to all acknowledge first that like the the alternative of just nobody ever moderates anything is not a live option and stop using it as a cudgel. Because I mm, do think mm-hmm. you see people, you know, after the the Trump ban being like, taking a stand for, well, I'm just against moderation from tech companies or something. But if it wasn't tech companies, it would be the government. And in the end of the day, there's gonna be moderation. And we just need to accept that there's gotta be some form of it and get down to the work of trying to draw lines as best we can, you know, hashing out terms of service requiring that bans be sort of publicly explained in ways that feels like there's accountability there are lots of approaches i think that we could take um but we have to first get past this idea that it's tyranny to enact any kind of controls at
0: all right um yeah i'm totally open to private companies doing what they want um i guess i was more thinking of just the the mindset of being willing to debate someone um i've seen I guess some not many but some left-wing people saying like I'll only engage in conversation that's reparative like um like in the sense that you need to come to me to apologize for the injustice that you're committing um and that sort of mentality I'm not saying it's common but it does it does seem like it mm-hmm. is a perspective that has gained some traction um
1: yeah that's interesting I haven't heard that language mm-hmm. I you know, and I can, again, I can I can both sides, all of these things. I am yeah. sympathetic to the idea that, you know, not everyone has to engage in the kind of um, scrapper Socratic dialogue that I find pleasurable, okay. right? Like if, if people want to say their project in this world is to find as many reparative conversations as they can or engage in that kind of discourse as much as they can. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything necessarily bad about that but i do also understand your concern that some of this rhetoric gets used as a kind of power play right it's used as a way to um manage conversations to control discourse um and and very actively so right some of these people will argue you know these pre- this previous group of individuals who got to control the discourse for thousands of years now need to not get to control the discourse in a very active kind of way, right? And you, you can debate the ethics of that, but I just want to sort of put that out there as like, I, I acknowledge that some folks are very consciously feel like what they are doing is enacting a kind of, you know, discourse reparations for the the locking down of discourses as, as they've experienced it previously, Um so so I'm, I'm sympathetic to the concerns about the way that can be abused because it's yeah. absolutely true that human beings, when they get power, will use it and, and will enjoy the control that they can exert against mm-hmm. other individuals. Um, and so, you know, the way I think we, we avoid that problem is... Um, de-escalation right is the more you can de-escalate these kinds of conversations um the more like i I think it becomes clear which individuals are doing that in good faith versus Hmm. which individuals Mm -hmm. are doing that as just a controlling holding maneuver very similar in in the way that i would say to like folks who are on the other side of the debate me worlds who like demand that you only talk in, in logical fallacies or demand that, like you only talk in sort of certain kinds of what they accept as formalized argumentative discourse that you don't talk about people's larger bodies of work and how you can infer from that, that they, the implications of this piece are aimed towards X rather than Y that kind of stuff, I think, is, is similar in that sometimes it's valuable and sometimes it is being used to shut down and avoid important conversations. So, I mean, one of the things I teach in my intro logic courses, is um, all good are well, let me put it this way: um, you know, it's very possible to do damage. I think even using principles that are fundamentally good for discourse, okay. um, such as. Being, being concerned about fallacies, right? I think you should be concerned about fallacies, but I think a fixation on calling fallacy on people can be harmful to discourse sure. um, and not very persuasive. Um, and that similarly, bad arguments can often look very similar to good arguments. And a lot of discourse is about, um, it comes down to debates over what kind of, like what you're looking at there. Are you looking at a fallacy or are you looking at a valid argument?
0: So, yeah, no, that's an important and difficult distinction, I think, which is why I don't necessarily think it's important to teach fallacies per se. One thing I was thinking Mm -hmm. of is appeal to authority. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is a logical fallacy, but there's a a version of it where it makes sense to trust scientists who have done scientific research. Um, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They're not infallible, but they know more about science than I do. Um,
1: Yeah, the way I I go um, about that is sort of I do a like you know you want you have the fallacy of appeal to authority and then you have the valid argument of appeal to expertise okay. right how do you tell the difference between an appeal to authority versus an appeal to expertise well an appeal to expertise the expert can usually explain what they're talking about right mm-hmm. they will give you more and more information there will be more and more detail there until you either acknowledge that you're not enough of an expert to understand it or you're satisfied by it right whereas an appeal to authority doesn't usually have that much backing it up and where it does it tends to fall apart when other experts examine it. And then, of course, you get into the problems of like, how do you, you know, how do you rely on experts arguing against other experts and how do you Mm -hmm. distinguish when you're a non-expert? And there's not perfect epistemic solutions here. Most of us are screwed when it comes to, you know, like knowing things because Mm -hmm. there's just there's vastly more information than any of us could ever become experts on. Um, And we're in an age where there's so much misinformation flying around that I don't think it's surprising that we're experiencing this massive epistemic crisis where, people believe all sorts of conspiracy theories and stuff, right. because there's there's just no way to filter the information effectively.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering how different it is from past eras, because I've seen descriptions of earlier forms of American journalism, which seem just as bad now in terms of hyperbole, outright falsehoods, um, mm-hmm. pure ideological screeds. <laughs> that don't really have much relationship to the truth. I mean, I get that the internet makes it all happen a lot faster, um, but I don't know, I'm wondering how you think about that.
1: Yeah, so it's not that I think that there's more lying now than there used mm-hmm. to be, right? It's always been the same amount of lying. What I think the technology has done, so like there are a couple of ways in which the technology has changed the game. One that I think is most important in the realm of like the conspiracy theory stuff that I study is The technology now allows for separate individuals across the world who previously would have had few to any contact with other individuals who shared in their particular conspiracy theory to instead be able to create these massive social networks where they can be heavily reinforced mm-hmm. and engage in these collective narrative formation games, essentially massive multiplayer games like QAnon, which is, is why one of the reasons I think that makes QAnon such a successful Cult and conspiracy theory is the way that it uses the accessibility of modern social media to get everybody hooked on this collaborative um, reality building game, essentially. So I think that's different. You didn't have as much of that and you didn't have... Um, the functional, in you know, ability to connect to other people across large distances, in in groups, in these kinds of ways that you have on social media. So that's the way. That's one of the ways in which I think you're seeing um, the technology producing a new breed of mis, um, uh, you know, misunderstanding and and like alternate realities
0: and such. Okay. So I think you're like roughly 175 episodes into your podcast, and I just listened to the first. One or two, as well as some of the more recent ones. But in the first one, I think you're talking about how you believe in Socratic debate, even though people don't seem to change their minds. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you feel about that now. Is that still more or less how you perceive of it? It's <laughs> like an almost futile exercise. Um,
1: yeah. I I don't think it's totally futile because I have gotten enough messages. From listeners who said I was on a trajectory towards being red pilled towards the far right towards, you know, uh, anti wokeness in the Mm -hmm. in the bad way right in the pejorative sense, um, rather than just simply critical and. Um, you know, then they listened to, to me arguing with various people. They listened to me talking about these issues, and and it shifted it for them. and And while they're still concerned about some of this stuff, they have um, recognized more that like the IDW is um, not what it claims to be a lot of the time, and mm-hmm. and is substantially misguided in a variety of ways. So, you know, that's just one example of where I think. I've personally experienced at scale um, my engagement in debates does seem to change people's minds to some extent. Now, you know, like, what is the effective like percentage? It's probably still very low, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're still probably not talking about a ton of people or something um, relative to, you know, how many people are listening to Joe Rogan or something like that. Um, but yeah, I do. I, so, so what I think is, I, um, it's not, it's not often the case that somebody will actively change their mind in the middle of a debate. Very rarely is someone mm-hmm. going to, like, throw up their hands halfway through a debate and say, you got me, right? right. Like, right. I lost this debate. I'm out. Um, but what you will, th- I think, get is buildups of cognitive dissonance, buildups of, um, you know, various things. Forces internal and external to the individual mm-hmm. that over time will impact their trajectory. And that may not even look like, um, you know, they may not be able to highlight here's the moment where I changed right. my mind right. or something, right? But it might still substantially impact how they, in the form of things like how they experience like their next engagement with someone or something Mm -hmm. right do they see that through a lens that incorporates the information they just heard from your discourse versus not and like what does that you know like shift slightly piece by piece over and over um so i think there is something to that and then like you know I, i won't i won't um You know, argue that there is the the famous example, right, of like the guy who uh, spends all his time talking to KKK people and you know pulling them out. Yeah, Daryl Davis. Yeah, right, Daryl Davis. Right, so like, there's that, and I'm sure there are you know multiple examples of that. Um, The flip side of that being, you know, the information from um, sort of cult deprogrammers, whose job it is to try to help people get out of cults, and the kind of mixed track record of those particular situations Um, so you know like I really I think there's no one right answer for is debate effective it's it does different things in different situations it's not a silver bullet um, but it is something worth doing and I think it's important it can also absolutely be used as a way to avoid dealing with issues right that it looks like it's helping but it's really just um, a a prevent defense kind of maneuver
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I think any time it's from what i've seen of the research anytime someone feels like their identity or their worldview is threatened they tend to gear up their defenses and aren't willing to listen whereas if they can externalize the concepts of being discussed and view it from a more neutral or objective point of view they're a lot more likely to to see things i guess you know like they, you know mm-hmm. to take a very simple example most people wouldn't deny like something that's right in front of them but most of the things that we argue about are not right in front of us um about physical reality that we see it's about abstract concepts like racism or sexism you know it's Uh things uh like that and then what does that mean to you what does the concept of white privilege mean to you well you know i'm white i feel this way but i don't feel privileged and you know and it just kind of like can very easily become this sort of um intense debate and people aren't even talking about the same thing, even though they think they are, they feel they are. Um, Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Like (laughs) that's one of the frustrations that I've experienced because I like witness these kinds of things all the time. And I read, I try to read widely. And so I generally know what people are talking about when they use a particular phrase, um, such Mm -hmm. as like, I'll use like uh, the phrase systemic racism. I think you were talking with uh, someone recently. I forget his name, but he was in, Mm -hmm engineer who um, got a little notoriety. Oh, Casey, Casey Peterson. Casey Peterson, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think y'all had a good discussion, but one thing that uh, I noticed was that you might not have defined the phrase systemic racism. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. there's kind of two ways. There's like the, the denotation of the word and the, the connotation. And the denotation, I would say, is the um ways in which uh the aspects of a given system can have disparate effects on minorities um Mm -hmm. very sort of and not necessarily intentionally and then there's Mm -hmm. the connotation of like something being systemic almost like a disease like it's innate to the system it's something that's corrupted the system that we need to root Mm -hmm. out. And it has Mm -hmm. like more of like a a visceral, like connotation that might someone who is defensive about that sort of description of America as a whole Mm -hmm. would Mm -hmm. engender sort of more of a reaction. I was wondering, like, does it, you're nodding. You sound roughly right to you.
1: So yeah, it's interesting. I, I definitely am, at least in principle, in favor of adopting language that minimizes um, reaction—you know, negative mm-hmm. reaction—when you're mm-hmm. trying to persuade. Right? Like, I'm I'm a proponent of persuasion, and that means that I'm I will use your language. Right? I will, I will as as uncondescendingly um, as possible, try to speak your language mm-hmm. when I am trying to talk to you. Um, the the difficulty. That I often find in that project is a a lot of the time it's there is no language that is not going to produce the reaction because the reaction is primed to occur and so bringing up the topic right is enough to to produce the reaction and and so like for example let me let me ask you is there a different way that you would like to hear this concept sort of termed right instead of systemic racism what would you prefer that you feel like would not carry that connotation
0: i i can't think of one and i personally Uh don't object to it um but i'm someone who has always been interested in philosophy and in different ways of viewing the world um and i think in terms of systems i'm a software engineer so i i kind of get what that can mean um, in terms of like an interpersonal and dynamics. Like, and so to me, I, I'm, I, I think it's fine. That's not a, mm-hmm. like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you should use a different word I'm, or a phrase. I'm just saying it's a problem <laughs> and I don't know how to solve it. Um, For sure. No, I yeah. was,
1: I was not, I didn't mean that as yeah. a gotcha question. I, I meant that it's very fine. much as like, yep. did you have a particular no. like alternative in mind that you feel like is more is less likely to, because like you know, this yeah. is a constant project for so for you know the 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 most um, common example of this one for me is I've had to completely drop the word problematic uh, from my rhetoric um, yep. because that is a very triggering concept for some people. Okay, but like the irony is, I you know I was a years and years ago right a young ethics teacher and i was trying to come up with a word that wasn't as as aggressive as immoral right i didn't want to just flat oh out goodness. say your behavior is immoral right yeah so instead i wanted to say your behavior you know it's problematic right there are Factors about it that could be considered immoral. I'm not going to make a conclusion about whether it's overall immoral, but like there are parts of it that are problematic. And now, you know, so many years later, that's now um, an unacceptable term. So there is, I think, this kind of resistance creep, right? Where there's resistance to the word racist so you people try to talk more about systemic racism rather than personal racism besides that being i think the right way to focus on racial issues being Mm -hmm. more about systems rather than than individual racists Mm -hmm. um you know i think it's also an attempt to try to shift away from personal blame while, while trying to address these problems still but then that's treated as like unacceptable in a different kind of way and i just at some point i think there isn't a reasonable claim to be made that the problem is we're trying to bring about substantial social change and the people that we're arguing with genuinely don't think that we need it or or should be bringing it about um and the language is the language game is somewhat secondary
0: yeah no i think that's right i don't think the language game is the the primary problem although on twitter maybe it is because on twitter you have no idea what what someone is trying to argue um that, that is tricky yeah. yep and it's someone yeah. who who does try to
1: cultivate at least some you know something less you know something not an echo chamber right mm-hmm. i often will get responses where i'm like i'm not I'm not even sure exactly what you mean, because there's so, like there's a lot of coding going on in yeah. the language, but I don't know which side it's from. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Luckily, uh, it's
1: easy because I go to someone's timeline and within three scrolls, I can figure out which tribe they're in. Okay. It's not, not particularly difficult. Everyone has very strongly um so- siloed themselves by identities, which is you were mentioning identities earlier. I think this is another key factor is. You know, I think Ezra Klein, who is probably the you know, you asked me at the beginning who my what my political identity is, right? Mm-hmm. I'm Ezra Kleinian progressive. Okay, okay. Uh, I think he's the most insightful person in the punditocracy right now. Um, and his analysis of the way that our identities have stacked up in such a way where a critique of any part of that identity feels like a critique of the entire identity mm-hmm. is, I think, a key piece of the polarization that we are seeing right now the really harmful um separating into realities that we're seeing
0: Yep. um so it's it's curious i was thinking about like my own identity and reaction to it and i think mm-hmm. personally i don't think it's a good idea to emphasize the concept of being white um, like, uh, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're Jewish. Um,
1: is half, but half sure, Jewish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I will see. I the yeah, name I'm, for it.
0: Okay. I'm, and I'm Anglo American. So like, mm-hmm. I, I just, I've come to, I mean, I am white, but I think of myself more as Anglo American because it's ethnic, like it's more accurate, um, and less, uh, Sort. I mean, I think the whole problem, right? Obviously, race was con- constructed as a social construct by Europeans to um, so, so you're sympathetic <laughs> justify to their own. Approach, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> um, you know, it, there's a version of everything that I agree with. Um, and so uh-huh. there's a version of critical theory that I think is accurate. But um, yeah. uh, anyway... I, I thought you were doing uh, some very good analysis of whiteness yeah. there. I thought that was uh, yeah, right, stuff. Right, right. No, so... But like the reason I brought it up is because there are some people who are like, well, j- like white is an ethnicity now, or like white grievance is in some way legitimate and like, or, or we should be sympathetic to white people. Like, I don't know. And I just think the whole concept of white people is bad. <laughs> um, <and laughs> like um, I, while at the same time, acknowledging that it's a thing that was created not by all white people, by, you know, French and British, usually, generally. So, I don't know, I thought I'd throw that out there. Um, what's what's your take? I mean, I think I think the history of whiteness is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And
1: I think it's worth discussing, you know, up to and including the concept of white fragility, though, I think D'Angelo is problematic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that the concept that she presents is not fictional um and is a part of the conversation worth having Um, i think you know i think the reality is that it's it's true that talking about race can be divisive Mm -hmm. right and if your goal is to never ever be divisive you should probably never talk about race but i also think it's true that you can't give a full accounting of past and present and future without talking about the role of race um, in people's lives, in people's outcomes. So, you know, I think, like you were saying, right? You can't, you can't get away from talking about it, even if it may be somewhat um, unfortunate that you can't get away from talking about it. And I would mm-hmm. certainly, you know, there. I, I think, I think anti woke folks get the impression. Let me, let me say this, right? Based on the fact, the number of times that I see anti woke co- folks quote. You know, I have a dream to live in a future where, you know, no one is judged, etc. While suggesting that woke folks are against that future in some substantive kind of way. Um, and I think that, that gives me the impression that they think that um, woke people want to live in a future where all we do is talk about race all the time. Right. right. Which is not. The way it's supposed to like that's not the goal right like yeah the goal is to talk about race in the present so that we can get to a future where we are no longer having to talk about race all of the time Mm -hmm. right so i think um you know, there's a miscommunication going on there, and it's it's unfortunate. I think sometimes it's deliberate, and I think it's enhanced by certain individuals whose goals are to make this an endless debate rather than make it a reconcilable debate, which it could potentially be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot riding on some, for some people on never letting the race war resolve, essentially, right? Never letting these conflicts um, be be legitimately addressed. Um, so. You know we're stuck in this particular point in history, having to talk about things that a lot of people don't want to talk about yeah. a lot, and it's un- it's uncomfortable and it's unfortunate. Um, and I think that that doesn't mean that we should stop talking about it. Um, I think it just means that we we barrel on and hope that we uh, can can make progress rather than sliding in the other direction.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a monetary incentive to. Sticking to one side of like this is identity politics and it's bad and I care about the individual, or mm-hmm. um, you know just caricatures right. of the other side. Um, so I'm glad that we're not doing that here. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, I wanted to ask you about um, more of so, sort of the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of debate seems to be um, the the way Jonathan Haidt describes it is. A lot of moral reasoning is justifying intuitions that we already have, and we'll make long arguments that are basically just, you know, justifying like key intuitions. That's one of the reasons that I'm interested in philosophy is because I like to think about what the what the underlying beliefs are, what the what's the thing mm-hmm. that's generating the the argument that's at the core of what ethics is or what it means to have a good society. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know if there's a question in there i guess i mean just like maybe the question is when you uh are engaging in debates or observing debates like are do you also think in terms of like okay this basic, person basically has this intuition and they're sticking to it but what i really need to get at is this underlying intuition like that's a, that's a that's something that i observe a lot um just mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah yeah
1: i mean it's funny that you you ask uh i was just referencing him in a paper oh, okay. um i you know I, I find height amusing because he's um very popular amongst people who largely disagree with me and i <laughs> okay. often find it weird because i feel like they miss the point <laughs> of some portions of his book sure um in weird ways uh but all, all of that aside right i have uh lots of agreements and disagreements with height i guess would be the way that i would put okay. it right as i'm a Um, a moral realist who believes that there are a variety of ethical foundations that objectively exist such as you ought not to cause unnecessary suffering you ought to respect autonomy similar to the 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 foundational principles the intuitions that he talks Mm -hmm. about in his material i think that we rely on those intuitions in part for doing our ethical work. And there's no alternative, no substitute to, for those intuitions in our ethical understanding. Um, and so a lot of our job is to develop our ability to, as best we can, rigorously critique our own intuitions and work to balance them. Because I think a lot of what you see in ethics is just this intuition of autonomy is in conflict with this intuition of you know, minimizing harm. What is the right ethical balance? There is no one exact perfect ethical balance. So what's an acceptable range of trade-offs that we can offer a person so that they can make their own choice or what is the acceptable range of trade-offs that we're gonna enact as a public policy, believing that that's what we were mandated to do as elected representatives, right? Stuff like that. Um, So yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic broadly to his approach. I think he gets important things wrong when he talks about liberal moral palates, hmm. um, but I think, I think it's absolutely true that when I am engaging with you as a, a moderate conservative, right, it will behoove me to uh, seek to understand which moral intuitions you find the most salient and, and cater to those in my ethical persuasion you um, know, in, in a way that isn't meant to be Machiavellian, right? Sure. Like in a way that is <laughs> sure. like genuinely trying to understand and not just get one over on your, your brain. Right. Elephant.
0: Right. Well, yeah, no. And that, that reminds me of um, Kant and not treating someone as a means to an end because uh, people are very aware of that. Intuitively. I think they're sensitive to, well, some forms of manipulation, um, and then other times I think they're not realizing when they're being manipulated, but- <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a bit hidden, uh, mess, let's Yeah, yeah. Um, so one other term that I think is interesting that there's like a good, uh, there's a form of it that I agree with and the form that I disagree with is equity. And, like, Mm. when I look up equity, (laughs) it just refers to fairness and impartiality, which I'm totally on board with. Um, And some people get really, some people on the right or IDW get really mad about this concept of equity, saying that it means equality of outcome. So um, anyway, how would you define equity?
1: Yeah. So a lot of what we do as philosophers is quibble over definitions, right? Mm-hmm. And, and distinguish, there's a, there's a great joke about, you know, a philosopher's job, right? You you distinguish between a few concepts, you make a few objections, it's a day's work. Um, so, so with equity, I think equity is a very important and meaningful concept. And I think it's important because of the ambiguity of the word you just used, which is fairness, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, John Rawls very famously does a lot of work trying just to define the concept of fairness and he caches it out in terms of justice and then caches it out in terms of principles that a just society would have to adhere to Um, and those principles while not explicitly while he doesn't explicitly use the term equitable I think you could argue that they are um, precursors to the kinds of equity arguments that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks in the woke world make so how to understand equity right there think of it as one way of giving an account of fairness right so one account of fairness would be everybody gets exactly the same thing right you get Ten dollars, and you get ten dollars, and you get ten dollars, right? It's it's uh, that's um, just fairness of uh, like um, uh, radical egalitarian fairness is the way that we would call that, right? Versus, you know, equity would be a kind of fairness where. Out where distributions are allocated based on factors that might make it the case that one person gets eight dollars and another person gets twelve dollars, right? Um, one example to me of what seems to be basic equity is things like a progressive income tax, right? So it seems equitable to me that. Someone who makes several orders of magnitude more money than they will ever need in their entire lives can and should pay a higher tax for the sake of that resource going towards, um, you know, our social goods, our infrastructures, all these sorts of things, uh, where someone with a much lower income who's going to suffer a great deal more from if they were paying a flat tax comparable to those other individuals would... Um, like it's 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 equitable for them to have to pay pay less, right now some some folks will argue that's not fair, right? It would be fair if everybody just paid the exact same percentage. And so this is really a fundamental debate about what um what my friend over uh, at uh, political philosophy pod calls um, you know essentially contestable concepts, right? There is no right definition of fairness. There are a bunch of definitions that have different strengths and weaknesses to them. And it's useful to apply them in a sophisticated way in different circumstances. Um, So, you know, where things get really controversial, obviously, is where we move from equitability just being about uh, class uh, to equitability being about things like race and Mm -hmm. gender and these other kinds of factors. Now, why do people who don't like equity say, well, this is just a quality of outcome, right? Um, Partly, I think that's an unfair approach, but the reason they get that impression is because one of the key factors that people will tend to look at when they're trying to discern if there is injustice going on such that there is a need for equity for the sake of bringing about a fair outcome, um, they will look at current inequalities of outcome, and they will look at changes to inequalities of outcome as being one one piece of evidence that a, a corrective is improving the situation in some kind of way. Um, now that is understandable. If that was the only thing they were doing, that would be problematic. But I don't think it is the only mechanism that people are using for assessing these kinds of questions. So where I think the people who are opposed to equity get it wrong is in saying that is all that it is, right? That's all that these people are looking at. Yes, it's absolutely true that you know, social justice folks look at um, coding, for example, and look at the abysmal numbers of women in coding and say these are unequitable outcomes and that we should be doing projects that bring about a more equitable outcome, which in effect means more women engaged in coding, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But they're also pointing to qualitative studies of the experiences of women in these fields who repeatedly describe what their justifications were for leaving the field early. And it has to do with things like, um,
0: programmers, you know,
1: right, right. Other programmers. (laughs) Right. So, uh, so what I'm saying, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like say, I, you know, that's the right answer on that particular, I'm just giving an example. Right. And of course, everyone will debate all of the examples that I will ever provide. But what I'm saying is, uh, the fair accounting to me seems to be social justice folks want to take into account of a wider range of factors when assessing fairness, and they want to bring about an outcome where we can then dismantle the tools of reparations because they're no longer necessary because you have achieved a just outcome. And from there, you have a kind of egalitarian fairness where there's no longer a need for rebalancing in that kind of way
0: okay that was a good explanation all right so i'm gonna wrap up with two ways to close but first i want to ask you have you ever done the enlightening round yourself
1: i have oh, i've okay. done a, a couple of versions of it on a couple of other folks podcasts it uh i probably have given different answers every single time every single i also <laughs> I, I also wrote an article for skeptic mag where i do um uh, monthly uh submissions and i wrote one about the enlightening round um and i I listed my answers there as well
0: okay all right well that's boring i'll um i won't do that then um i (laughs) I figured you probably had no 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 no. it's fine i figured you probably already had um My answer is that I'm pretty sure all of them are real, Uh, but okay, (laughs) that's um. I'm kind of boring in my own way, Uh, and for yeah, um, people, you're you're a little base. You're a
1: little enlightening around basic. That's
0: fine. uh, Yes, that is correct. Um, (laughs) and I guess I should describe it now that we've brought it up. But basically, it's a uh, at the end of your podcast, you ask each guest whether um, any number of things are real or not, such as the external world free will genders races god or god society money numbers sandwiches beauty time that's just Mm -hmm. a selection um Mm -hmm. i think it's i think it's a fun game um and i'm surprised how many people are caught off guard by it um or like (laughs) it isn't it's weird right Yeah. Um,
1: You know, it's a fun kind of torture, uh, especially for philosophers who spent way too much time thinking about what the word real means. mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's also meaningful for non philosophers, because I think we do all spend all of our time calling things real and not real. But what the, what the enlightening around, you know, what I love about it is that it drives home that there is no one definition of real, much like we were just saying with fairness, right? It's mm-hmm. a real is an essentially contestable concept. And people always want to say, well, real in what sense? Right? I think that's actually the name of the uh, the article I end up writing, right? It's like, um, you know, people mean different things when they say real, when they say that society is real versus when they say that you're real. Um, but those... and 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 like a lot of the culture war stuff interestingly enough right centers around really kind of ham-handed debates about what is and isn't real like Mm -hmm. gender and math and numbers and these sorts of things right (laughs) um and it just and that's that's why it's especially funny to be on philosophy Twitter when the culture wars are happening, because like you've got like the intellectual dark web ham handedly talking about um, you know, the correspondence theories of truth and like metaphysical arguments <laughs> and like philosophy Twitter is just, is just cracking up at uh, the weird misuses and also just the hilarities of um, you know, being so absolutely confident about like, basics of of philosophy of math or something like that, for which there is so much widespread debate, essentially. Right, so
0: now I have to ask you whether 2 plus 2 equals 4.
1: Right, and I mean,
0: right, it both does
1: and it doesn't, like, as far as the mathematicians will tell me, right? It does for, in a lot of situations, and then there are other situations in which it doesn't. It's a useful convention 99% of the time to think that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But I think... You know to me the two plus two equals four debate it's not about the math right it's about debates over what counts as truth is there such thing as objective truth that folks like lindsey are trying to peg his opponents as having no functioning account of objective reality or objective truth right where like in a sense where he, You get the impression if he heard one of my guests say that numbers aren't real, he would just assume that it was because they were woke or something, right? (laughs) Not because there's a big platonic, you know, anti-Platonist debate within philosophy of math. Um, So, you know, I think what's really important is that folks need to not get hooked on the idea that there is this giant conspiracy of people who are out there denying basic truths for the sake of wokeness and that the reality is there is a lot of debate around a, a lot of very com- complicated, contestable concepts um, that is being heavily oversimplified by folks like James Lindsay, because it's much easier to, to like grift off of it, um, yeah. to, be, to be quite honest, when and you oversimplify, straw,
0: man. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. He's just out there poisoning the well, because it's easier to, you know, continue to gin up conflict over a poisoned well.
0: Yeah, I think I usually do the opposite. Where if someone says something, I try to find a way in which it might make sense to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And feel botting, yeah, it's always good. um, Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because like I do agree, like with Richard Weaver and his book titled "Ideas Have Consequences," Um, Mm -hmm. like. It is it is important to me to recognize that you know, certain philosophical positions have negative consequences in the world, and we should oppose them. Um, but at the same time, any one idea like I'm not too concerned about the fact that you won't say two plus two always equals four, um, because I'm pretty sure that I know what you mean when you say that 99% of the time it does, like, I'm not going to get hung up on that. Um, I might take issue with others of your positions, you know, but like, I'm not going to focus on that one. Uh, I mm-hmm. guess it's just kind of more of a, a balanced approach that I try to take. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, I think a balanced You know, looking for nuance, like
1: genuine nuance, Mm -hmm. being skeptical about catastrophizing Mm -hmm, around things like two plus two equals four. Like these are the ways that I, you know, I I think people can try to survive this epistemic storm that that is going to continue to rage for a Mm -hmm. while. I think epistemic Um, storm. Um, That's good. Yeah, It's a good catchphrase. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Spiral is another way to put this. Um, But yeah, I think for everything that i say there will always be a counterpoint so right there are times in which you should adopt extreme views because the extreme view is the correct one in conjunction you know in contrast to the moderate view that has been harmful and and to people right going back to mlk right he says exactly this i'd rather be an extremist for love um and i think there is something to you know that idea um but i also you know i tend to be uh, while, while a progressive liberal, I, I am accused of often being moderate by by folks to the really? left of me. Um, okay. Yeah, because, you know, I tend to not be for radical violent change, even though I understand why it is n- maybe necessary in certain circumstances. I don't think that it's uh, um, usually a viable path towards change. So I tend to be more in favor of Um, you know, growing and altering the system rather than radically overthrowing it um, in such ways. I'm glad.
0: I I also (laughs)
1: am in favor of democracy. Um, But like, I will also say, I'm 100% for nuking the filibuster and forcing through as many social changes as we can, because I think the filibuster is a massive problem that is preventing our ability as a society to address a variety of um, pressing issues. So...
0: All right. uh, Closing question. Can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics and you thought, you know, you might have a point?
1: Yeah, so I was thinking about this question and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about persuasion and how it works. Um, You know, it's very hard in my mind to come up with an example of like, here was a moment where someone made an argument that flipped a switch in my head or something like that. But I can absolutely point to, for example, with gun control, when I was younger, I was much more adamant that like, we should just get rid of all the guns or something like that, a very kind of far... Mm -hmm. Um, extreme left, quote unquote, but like, you know, uh, a much more uh, controlling position. Um, And while I'm still in favor of robust gun control and changes to it, um, you know, over the course of my life, growing up in Virginia, knowing people who had guns for a variety of reasons, reading arguments of the specific paper by La Follette that I think was fairly compelling to me in terms of making the case that people have a derivative right to own a gun and it should be respected. And there are a variety of acceptable reasons why people would own a gun. And then there's, that you can own a gun in an ethical kind of way um, and that we should as a society allow people to do so. Uh, So that was one example for me, I guess, where I feel like, I have substantially in a way that like puts me at odds, right. With some of my progressive compatriots. Um, But yeah, that's one.
0: All right, cool. Aaron Rabinowitz, thank you for coming on. You might have a point.
1: (laughs) Thanks very much. It's been fun.
0: That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.